You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And the Orioles have won the game! They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy! They're jumping on each other! One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see. And welcome to it. Thanks for being with us here on Orioles Magic, the podcast. As always, Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. And Jeff, I have some good news and I have some bad news. What do you want to hear first? I will take the bad news first. All right, Jeff, here we go. With baseball season starting up again here real soon, thankfully, uh, we are going to take a bit of a nap here on Orioles Magic, the podcast. We're going to take a bit of a break. We'll talk again in this form in the offseason but I'll take you right into our good news. We are coming back with a bit of a different podcast. Some things are still TBD. That's insider uh, for to be determined. Uh, you know, I don't want to jump the uh, gun on that. But we are coming back. Same two friendly voices and faces on uh, on this podcast channel. But we are going to uh, redress a little bit more in the efforts of of pertinent baseball stuff happening right now. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on with summer camp beginning to wrap up. It's amazing to think that as we, we tape this, um, we're, we're, we're not that far away from a season. The season will get started on the 24th of July against the Boston Red Sox. And when we get the season started, we obviously want to bring you all the insider information, do some fun interviews, and just continue the fun that we've had on Orioles Magic. So that's what the next podcast is going to be. And much more on this, uh, you know, keep it right here and keep checking in and keep checking our Twitter handles for the very latest on this. But here in our final episode for right now on Orioles Magic, the podcast, we've done 20 plus of them. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this more than that uh, coming up a little later. But Jeff, I think it's a good time to look back and, and kind of reflect on some of the highlights we've had here. And it was really tough going through it and figuring out, I don't know, five, six, seven to choose from. I mean, you probably could have done an entire episode on just the uh, definitive Jim Palmer episode alone, which was unbelievable. We covered so much ground from him beating Sandy Koufax in the World Series to uh, him doing baseball broadcasts with Earl Weaver. That was a hilarious story to him getting his role in Naked Gun. But yeah, there, there's so many different snippets from all the different episodes that, that we could have we could have probably done an episode that would have been two hours long but uh, we decided to mash it up make it a little bit shorter and uh, pick out some some great clips and uh, we had a lot to choose from but I think we did a pretty good job of deciding uh, the ones that were the most entertaining so many memorable lines and quotes and and so many familiar names and and legendary Orioles and connected baseball people I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it we really ran the gamut we also talked to Mike Elias and and different things both in the lead up and post draft and we had a lot of fun talking about a lot of different specific and more general moments and, and famous Orioles. But uh, one that obviously is among the most famous is the opening of Oriole Park at Camden Yards back on April 6, 1992. In one of our first episodes, we talked to a really good major league pitcher uh, by the name of Rick Sutcliffe, who, of course, got the call on April 6 as uh, he made his first official start as a Baltimore Oriole. And boy, did he have a story to tell about getting the ball that day in downtown Baltimore. 
I, I had pitched in a lot of opening days. I had I had pitched in the playoffs. I had pitched in the All Star game. So the pressure of all of that, I was I was kind of used to. Uh, but how it all came about was in 1979 when I was fortunate to be the rookie of the year. A big part of that was my catcher. For the most part, was a guy named Johnny Oates. When I got traded to the Chicago Cubs in '84, um, the bullpen catcher for the Chicago Cubs was again Johnny Oates. Uh, I didn't go on a scouting report in '84 that the Cubs had. I went on what Johnny told me, and as a lot of people know, I, I went on to to win the Cy Young Award. Um, and all of a sudden, in 1992, the Cubs didn't want me. I had come off of shoulder surgery. I get a call from none other than Johnny Oates. He's the manager of the Baltimore Orioles. He said, I need you to come to Baltimore. I want to meet with you. Well, I was happy to go there. I flew in with my aides, and I knew what he was going to talk about. But as you said, I was at the end of my career. I, I really didn't need to be going to the American League East where the designated hitter was there. Um, I was older. It just didn't seem like the right fit. But as we get to the ballpark, Johnny leaves Larry Lucchino and everybody else, my agent back, and he walks me out to the mound at Camden Yard. And he said, I want you to look around. And I'm looking around, and I'm seeing how beautiful it is. I'm seeing a lot of things that remind you of, of Fenway and, and Wrigley and, and a lot of the great stadiums of, of baseball history. And Johnny goes, you're going to throw the first pitch ever in this ballpark. And as I talk with you guys right now, I mean, I'm getting the hair standing up on my arms. Um, the goosebumps that I got, like, determined to me that I, I knew what I was going to do. I didn't know what kind of a year I was going to have, but I knew in 1992 I, I was going to be a Baltimore Oriole. I went to my agent. I told him get the deal done. And it was all set that I was going to pitch opening day at Camden Yard. That was Rick Sutcliffe, who's now a terrific baseball broadcaster for ESPN and has had a distinguished career in a couple of capacities. And we talked to a number of different uh, former great players who've also gone into great broadcasting careers. And how about that sell from Johnny Oates? Uh, took Rick Sutcliffe to Camden Yards and said, you're going to be the first guy that's going to pitch at this ballpark. I mean, you just got chills from him talking about it. Yeah, and by the way, I recommend everyone goes back and they have some time listening to some old episodes if they're getting hungry for some more baseball. Just hearing Sut talk about Mucina and McDonald and being a leader and how good those teams really were, and of course his relationship, as you mentioned, Jeff, with Johnny Oates. A critical part of Sutcliffe's career. And one of my other favorite episodes was talking to Alan Mills where we went specifically into the time that uh, he had a little bit of a – uh, run-in with Daryl Strawberry. He said he doesn't like strawberries, and uh, we talked a little bit more with Alan Mills about his experience at Yankee Stadium. You go ahead a couple of years to Yankee Stadium, and uh, Armando Benitez drills <laughs> Tino Martinez in the back, and uh, the bullpen's empty, and everyone comes out onto the field. Um, can you take us back through sort of what happened um, on that particular night between you and Daryl Strawberry? Um, I'm allergic to strawberries, so I don't know what you mean about that. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take you through what I recall and what I remember of that game. Um, it, it, was, it was funny in a way because I pitched right before Armando, so I was in the dugout. I came in the game to face um, – Jeter and Jeter flew out to right and they took me out. Bernie Williams was a switch hitter, 
So I think Davey wanted Amando to face him instead of me. So he, Amando comes in the game. I think Bernie ends up hitting a home run. And Tino comes up next, and they take the lead. And that's kind of how it was for us in 96. We just could not ever beat them. We were just as good as them. But there was always something that would happen that kind of gave them an edge at, at the end. So, you know, they took the lead. And I'm sitting in the dugout like, okay, what is it going to take for us to be able to, you know, finish these guys? And Benitez is still out there. He's pissed. I see it in his face. And I look, and Tino's coming up. And a situation happened earlier in Benitez's career where he drilled Tino after a home run when Tino was playing for Seattle. So I'm looking at Tino come up. I look at Amando, and I get deja vu. And it was like, oh, man, I remember when he drilled this guy, you know, when he was with Seattle. And they say, you know, there's a 99-mile-an-hour fastball right in the middle of his back. And it had to hurt. I mean, it, it had to hurt. And they say, you know, you know everything kind of gets kind of crazy. I'm relaxed. I'm not doing anything. Strawberry comes out of the dugout. He's pissed. They're pissed. As they should be, you know, because he hit him on purpose, as far as I know. That's what I think. I don't know for sure. But, um, yeah, he did. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, it kind of gets crazy, but nothing gets out of hand until Graham Lloyd and Jeff Nelson. And I think Nelson is from Maryland. Yes. Um, came out of the bullpen and they were pissed and they're they right, rightfully so. You know, he drilled a guy and um, it kind of got chaotic. So now you got three guys trying to get at Armando. Never really happened, but it was chaotic and then they kind of calmed down then strawberry started back up and then it kind of poured over into our dugout and like i said i was i was chilled i was you know hell i'd be mad too if they hit my teammate you know so we're in the dugout amando's to my right and i'm on the step i'm holding back this guy named stanton and jeter and i have a common friend named gerald williams you know, even though Jeter and I aren't good friends, we're friends through a friend. So he's screaming like, what's wrong with your boy? What's wrong with, what's wrong with Amanda? I was like, I was looking at him and I was actually smiling. It was so funny. I was smiling at the time. And I was like, okay, I don't have enough time to tell you what's wrong with Amanda. There are a lot of, he has a lot of issues, you know? And I was kind of smiling about it. And the next thing you know, I saw a shadow. And it was Strawberry taking a shot at Benitez and he just kind of fell into our dugout not literally fell but he stepped down into our dugout and you know I just start walking toward him and I hit him you know it wasn't like anything was planned I just didn't think he belonged in our dugout I mean you have your own dugout and it kind of got crazy after that so um, like I said I'm allergic to strawberries that's all I remember and there's the one they call Millsy, number 75, Alan Mills, who was oddly and probably coincidentally a part of several uh, pretty tough brawls in Baltimore baseball history. Well, if you were a, a diehard Orioles fan at the time of their uh, resurgence, right around 2011, 2012, uh, you certainly were familiar with their shortstop, an all-star and just a consummate pro. Uh, you know him 
by name J.J. Hardy, but in your head you're probably saying it a certain way, the way Ryan Wagner said it so many times at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, Jeff. And, of course, that's something that J.J. carries with him to this day. And he had people come up to him all the time, players from other teams, and say, how cool is it to have your name said that way? And he's like, just you saying it on the podcast gave me chills, and he kind of recounted what it, what it meant to him on our podcast. JJ, last one for me. How much do you miss walking up to the plate at Camden Yards and the PA announcer saying, now batting, JJ Hardy? I mean, right, just, just you doing that right now gave me the chills. And just every, <laughs> single, every single time I did it, um, you know, it, it's something that uh, you can't forget. I mean, it, it meant so much to me, and it was really so cool. Um, even guys that we played against, um, uh, Detroit in 2014 um, is kind of when I think it all started in the postseason there. And uh, it, uh, those guys, like, still come up to me, and when they see me, they'll do that. They'll go, Jay, Jay, Hardy. And I'm like, stop, you know, stop it. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it was amazing. And, um, you know, it's something I'll definitely always remember. J.J. Hardy appeared in some big games for the Orioles during his time with the organization. But if you look at maybe one of the best big game pitchers in Orioles history, maybe the best, you'd have to go with Scotty McGregor, who tried to close things out for the Orioles in Game 5 of the 83 World Series, the I-95 World Series against the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, you pitched two games in that 1983 World Series, including the clincher Game 5, uh, complete game shutout. Uh, you were spectacular in both of your starts in that World Series. But take us through Game 5, a second chance against the Phillies. Well, yeah. Uh, first and foremost, you know, all of a sudden we're deja vu of 79. We're up three games to one. And uh, you could have heard a pin drop after we won that third game and said, okay, boys. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, it was nice to have a three-run, you know, three-to-one three lead going out there. But there was 66,000 people there. And we knew that it was the old big red machine when you're pitching against all the old you know, Pete Rose and Perez and Morgan. And, uh, it was it was pretty impressive. But Eddie showed up early, which really made that game a little bit easier. You know, him and Dempsey. You know, they give me five runs early, and and they just made it. Just throw the ball over the plate. And I, you know, I I look at the stats. I'm watching the thing that's on the game. And if I'd have known before the game that I was 14 and one on the road and seven and zero on AstroTurf, I would probably have kept that. <laughs> I mean, the first time I saw that, I go, holy cow, this was a shoe-in, you know? But uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was just, a, you know, an amazing thing to have the teammates that we had there and to even get the two World Series and have a chance to redeem yourself. It was pretty, pretty uh, special to be able to have that chance to do it. I'll tell you what, Jeff. We spent a lot of time looking at those Orioles clubs from the Orioles magic days of the late 70s and early 80s. And what you heard Scott McGregor say, uh, Rick Dempsey, what you heard Eddie Murray say, Kenny Singleton, uh, you really got the understanding that this was a very uh, tightly knit group of really, really good players who were determined, uh, above all, to win the whole darn thing in 1983. And, and Scotty McGregor said to himself, there was, just, there was just no way they were not going to wrap things up against Philadelphia. Yeah, they had some opportunities. I mean, you go back to 1982 where Earl Weaver uh, 
manages what we thought was going to be his final game at the time. Didn't end up turning out that way. And then, of course, the Orioles in 79 having an opportunity to win the World Series against the Pirates. A lot of them certainly carried over the memories of that into 83. And those couple of events proved to be the fuel that the Orioles needed to get the job done against the Phillies. Uh, obviously, uh, Jim Palmer wins his final World Series game, his final World Series in 1983. Uh, he was not at the apex of his career at that point, but still found a way to come on and, and pitch meaningful innings in that 1983 World Series. But two guys who uh, led the way in 1983, you may have heard of them, uh, Cal Ripken and Eddie Murray. And we asked number 22 about those two coming onto the scene. You know, Cal was one of the great, great guest hitters. You know, Mike Witt, who pitched for the Angels, had a great curveball. Well, Cal would go up there, and that great curveball wasn't that great when he'd look for it. And then it'd be a three-run home run. You know, everybody would wonder why. I mean, I watched Eddie Murray when he came up to, what, 77, batting practice down in uh, spring training in Miami. And I go, this kid can't hit. And then the game started. And then I saw, oh, wait a minute. He has an idea of what's coming. You know, not to mention being a switch hitter, not to mention to be, you know, hand-eye coordination which is why he had over 500 home runs and 3,000 hits. And there's only five guys on that list. And a couple of them you can't even count because they had a little bit of help. <laughs> what do you remember about Cal at the very beginning of his career? Well, I, he was four years old and we couldn't get him off the field in Aberdeen, South Dakota. I was, I was 18 and he was, he was four and he wanted us to keep, we got to go, you know, Cal, get away. You're going to get hurt out here. No. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, he started – I don't remember. I, I, I mean, I re, you know, I've read that he went four for 55 or whatever. I, I don't really remember that. I mean, I know that he came and worked out. Uh, you know, I'd read the scouting report. Somebody said, yeah, he's going to be the next Jim Palmer. Thank God he was third baseman that turned into a shortstop so he could go to the Hall of Fame with, you know, 428 home runs and over 3,000 hits and played in 2,630, whatever, two consecutive games. Eddie and Cal, obviously two of the greatest in Orioles history. We had a great conversation with Eddie Murray. I think that was one of my highlights as we got started with Orioles Magic, the podcast. Uh, ben McDonald, our colleague on the Orioles radio network in Masson, uh, he had an opportunity to play with Cal. And you know, Big Ben, first number one overall pick in Orioles history. And he had a great fastball and a big personality, uh, which players in the Orioles got to realize then and uh, which we on our Orioles broadcast team, uh, we're starting to realize right now. Oh, I wouldn't be lying to you if I said all of them, everybody, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I've, I've caught one fish in one afternoon and stuck it in my bathtub and wrapped his mouth up so it wouldn't bite me at nighttime. And I had a big duffel bag. And so I went to the ballpark the next morning for spring training at eight o'clock. I just brought the duffel bag in. Nobody knew what was in the duffel bag. And I just kind of unzipped it and set it by my locker and walked away. Well, it took about a minute for this alligator to get out, and it starts running through the clubhouse. I'm like, there was screaming like you've never heard screaming in your life. There was actually guys on top of their lockers screaming as the alligator ran through the clubhouse. Then again, I had his mouth taped shut, so he wasn't going to bite anybody. So uh, that was at the old Twin Lakes facility uh, in Sarasota where the minor leaguers are right now. So after I got scolded a little bit by everybody, I went and grabbed it and, and undid the tape and put it in the pond there at Twin Lakes facility. But uh, I think everybody – I had – let's put it like this. I had the entire locker room to myself once the alligators got loose, except for the guys that were sitting on top of their lockers. Everybody else ran out of the clubhouse. Well, there's Big Ben. And, Jeff, I think it's safe to say they don't make him like that anymore in a lot of ways. Uh, he is no, an don't. original. There's an authenticity to him. And it's why I think – 
so many people – I mean, the minute he started doing games on television radio, the amount of people in town that would say to me, I love Ben. I love hearing Ben. I love watching Ben. Uh, there's something that you gravitate towards uh, when you hear him talk. I think it's the way that he makes the game so simple to understand because I think we as broadcasters can really get into the weeds and try and show how much we know. Ben knows what he's talking about. He understands the new perspective. He understands the older perspective. Uh, he understands the analytics, but he also understands that, you know, most people just want it broken down in simple terms. And he is so good at explaining that part of the game. Uh, though I will say, um, when we get started with our season, I think I will have to put a sign on the broadcast booth that says, uh, no wildlife allowed. No alligators, no wildlife for Big Ben <laughs> McDonald. Uh, well, it's been a lot of fun uh, doing Orioles Magic, the podcast here. And, you know, we'll, we'll bring it back uh, in the offseason, which is actually not that far away <laughs> as it goes right now. Uh, but the task at hand is baseball and a 60-game schedule and baseball at Camden Yards. And, and Jeff, uh, we will be seeing each other in person, actually, hopefully coming up here in, in just really a few days. So that's very exciting. And then we'll uh, recloak this thing and have some more information on that in the coming days. But it's been real, Jeff, uh, talking about some Orioles magic. It's been so much fun. It's been a great way for me to learn about the organization a little bit further, the rich history of it, you know, going all the way back to the 1960s and some of the great conversations that, that we had with you know, guys like Boog Powell, and then uh, going a little bit more uh, current with people like J.J. Hardy, um, all of these guests that we had, indelible roles in Orioles history, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Look forward to picking it up, but I'm also excited about what is in store shortly. And I will second that. So thanks for being with us, everyone, through this and through some tough times. But just to think about some good baseball moments and memories, it's been really fun for us to share those with you and to our great staff and crew uh, behind the scenes making all of this happen as well. Thank you to them. So uh, keep it right here. We'll have some more information coming out shortly. But until then, Brett Hollander for Jeff Arnold. So long, everyone.